Greetings, everybody. This is a Travel Addict podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and adventure travel from around the world with activities such as trekking, diving, camping, driving, cruising, and just plain chilling out somewhere. We talk about lots of experiences in places all over the world, including the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. Education, fulfillment, and wonder enrich our lives. And of all the books in the world, the best stories are found between the pages of a passport. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. Malcolm Teasdale here, the travel addict. Hope everyone is well today. I have a guest here from the great city of Squamish, British Columbia, uh, from the great country of uh, Canada. Canada. It's Bridie Reed. Bridie. Now, I've got to remember it's spelled B-R-I-G-H-D-E. All right. For anyone who wants to spell her name correctly on paper, that's how you spell it. Pronounced Bridie. Got it right. Now, Bridie, born and raised in the United Kingdom, a bit like me, moved to Australia for a while and lived in six other countries. That intrigues me. Um, She spent a decade in tourism before heading into the educational section, heading back into tourism where she has this business going right now, which is great. Now, so they're based in uh, Northwestern Canada. And uh, so we're going to learn a little bit more about her. And uh, by the way, she is a vegan. So we're going to ask questions about that. Bridie, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me on, Malcolm. Thank you. Pleasure. And as you can tell everyone, she sounds a bit like me. Well, in, you know, accent format, because obviously we both were born and raised in the old country. Yes. Now, Bridie, you were raised in the UK in the southeastern part of England. Great area, by the way. How old were you when you moved to Australia? Mm, I was 18. <clears throat> I was 18 years old. Um, my mum was is, is Australian and she had come over in the 1960s to the UK. Lots of um, Aussies did that in the 1960s. And she met my dad and we just decided to do a, something a little bit different. Uh, and we moved to Australia at a convenient time in my education. So just after I finished uh, my A-levels and before I started university. Excellent. Uh, Now, Australia is quite a big place. Whereabouts in Australia? Yes. So I went to university in Armadale, which is a small university, a rural town in central New South Wales. So it was quite different. And my parents ended up moving to Tamworth, which is Australia's country music capital, which is also in central New South Wales. So, um, yes. (laughs) Tamworth. That name must originate from England, I'm, I'm thinking, right? Because you know where Tamworth is, it's in the Midlands area of England. Yeah, so that, that's yes. interesting, that. Okay, so did you, I was going to say, did you pick up any um, Australian speaking terms? <laughs> 
few, a few. I think I did because I really wanted to blend in as quickly as possible. I was an Australian citizen um, because uh, my mum was Australian, so I was able to move to Australia quite easily compared yeah. with many other people who have to go quite through quite the process to settle in another country. And um, I, I was only 18. I really wanted to settle in. So I think I did sort of pick up a lot, lots of the lingo um, at the time. But I think since I left, I perhaps have lost a lot of it. But because I've lived in so many international settings, I always sort of pick up and adapt to um, uh, the people that I'm working around. And I've worked in places where there's been a very diverse population yeah, exactly. uh, um, around the world. So, yeah, it's always interesting. All right, great. Yeah, I love Australia. I've been there a couple of times, but more to Sydney, Melbourne, and the Brisbane area. Never got up to to uh, uh, your neck of the woods there. How long did you live there, by the way? Sure. I lived there for four years for the entirety of my university education, and honestly, I thought I was going to end up settling there forever after doing a little bit of travel in my mid-20s, which a lot of people like to do. You know, yeah. they finish university and then they go travelling. Yeah. And then I would come back and I would settle down and, and um, you know, at that time I thought I was going to get married to a particular person. Obviously that didn't, that didn't happen. But before I wanted to sort of settle down, well, I thought I was going to settle down at that point. I really wanted to do a little bit of traveling. And for me, that was um, going back to the UK for a short period of time and then uh, uh, working in a French school. So I did that for about a year and a half, and then I came back to Australia. I <laughs> broke up with my partner, and I worked in Sydney for about 18 months, and that was when I got my um, first opportunity to sort of live and travel overseas, and that was working as a tour leader for Intrepid Travel. It's a, it's a group tour company, and maybe people have heard about it, and I did that for five years. So over two stints, oh, I would okay. say I lived in Australia for about six six years. Um, my parents still live there and, okay, and cool. family members still live there. So I go back there. Yeah. Do you have an Australian often. passport? I do. I do. Did you have to revoke your British citizenship? No, no. Australia allows uh, multiple personal um multiple passports and uh canada does too so by the time i get my canadian citizenship i'll have three i just wondered is that rule changed how long ago did you get your australian passport by the way yes a long time ago um well, don't, don't, think... you don't have to tell me exactly i just oh no that. i don't have, mind have, sharing have the, have the rules changed because i've heard of a couple of people brits going down there they had to make a decision whether they wanted to be australian or british and okay and a couple of people i, I just said well yeah some people stayed down there a couple of people i know came back because they didn't want to uh, revoke their british citizenship so I, I i don't know i um i don't know what the rule of thumb is today Okay, I'll, I'll check that out. <laughs> no worries. I would be really surprised. I would be really surprised. I mean, I know that getting Australian citizenship through descent, through family members, is not necessarily automatic or easy, um, or there are certain limitations. You know, you have to apply for it by a certain age or something like that. But 
my mum applied for Australian citizenship for me when I was about seven years old or something, and we got the certificate fairly yeah. easily. But I'm sure it's more difficult these days. Yeah, I just probably there are probably some rules about that because it's a, a family member as opposed to a person who's transferred there for work, maybe. All right. right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that subject's probably boring to a lot of people out there. Okay, so moving on, you've lived in uh, a few other countries. Now, I'm intrigued by this because you mentioned a couple of places that would be considerations for me. Where else did you live for any period of time? Sure, sure. So after I I lived in France, I lived there actually for two stints. So maybe I should go back to um, just after university. I actually lived and worked in France for a year. Okay. And my motivation for doing that was to learn more French. Um, it was rather embarrassing because I was actually a qualified French teacher at that point. My university uh, studies had allowed me to be a French teacher on paper, but the reality was I really hadn't had that opportunity to practice. Oh, okay. So, so um, I decided to uh, apply for, and I believe the program still exists. It's uh, an assistantship, so to work in a school. So, for example, um, you, if you're a recent uh, graduate or you're interested in education um, or teaching, then you can apply through a French uh, program. And if you are accepted, then they will um, place you in a French school, primary school, high school, something like that, for about 10 months or so. And you teach for like 10 hours a week and you get like a little stipend, which is plenty enough as a 22-year-old yeah. uh, to travel and enjoy this incredible place. So that was the first time I lived in France, but I okay. also did it when I was tour leading as well. Okay, well, that, that's good. Okay, so you moved on and mm -hmm. uh, you live in Thailand also, right? I did. Whereabouts? Big place. Yes, yes. Um, Bangkok, downtown Bangkok. I lived there on three different uh, stints, actually. One as a tour leader for for a couple of years, yeah. another as an international school teacher in a in a um, sort of an entry position, let's say, yeah. um, in an international school, and then I left for a couple of years. And because I loved it so much, I came back and I was working at a very good international school in the heart of Bangkok, down Sukhumvit Road, probably. You are right. It was in Sukhumvit. Soy 15 was my school, and I lived Soy in Sukhumvit. Soy oh, 11. <laughs> I, I've been going there for, for many years. I love Bangkok. I just love the chaos of it, and uh, it's somewhat exciting. It's safe, and uh, but I also love the other northern Thailand, the, the islands, Phuket especially. I'll be back there in uh, November, actually, for a few days. Um, so, so you're in the centre of all the action there in Sukhumvit, right? Yes, very yes. much so. It's a live day and night. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Great restaurants, sky bars, and uh, a lot of some other naughty stuff as well, as you know, but that's mm -hmm. all right. That's, uh, <laughs> it's life, isn't it? Um, when you were a teacher, were you teaching English? Was that part of the ESL program, English as a Second Language program? Um, no. So, yes, I was teaching English, um, but I wasn't sort of teaching in a language school, if, if oh. that makes sense. Yeah. So, so there is a bit of a difference between the two. So an, an English language school is usually 
a language school that is designed for people that want to learn English or children who want to learn English and they go once or twice a week for an hour and a half and and they're taught in a very particular way usually. Um, Whereas I worked in an international school where um, in the case of the schools that I worked in, one school followed the British curriculum and the other school followed the international baccalaureate curriculum. And uh, basically it's just like a regular school the main language of instruction is English. So you go, you know, as a nine-year-old, you go to your classroom and your teacher there teaches you English for most of the day and they might go to a different teacher for um, learning Thai a few times a week or maybe PE classes or something like that. And I worked in support services. So I actually... um, was an English support teacher. So, of course, in international schools, there are students who come to the school who don't have a lot of proficiency in English yet. They need help to access the curriculum. I mean, if you can imagine you're you're not just learning English, you're learning about how volcanoes work or something like that. And that's really hard to do when you don't, you know, when you think about all of that technical language, for example. And uh, so you need help to do that. So part of my job is to scaffold the curriculum so that students are able to um, access that, that content and achieve, you know, what, cause they're super smart kids. They just can't, can't produce the language or can't understand the language. So, so yeah, I worked in support services, but you know, I'm a qualified teacher and, uh, and that was what allowed me to get this kind of job. Whereas a language school, a a TEFL or an ESL qualification would suffice. Yeah, actually, I, you know, funny thing about Thailand is um, it's a language that's probably not spoken widely outside of Thailand. Reason for that is, you know, you probably know people there. People have very long names, a lot of characters in them, right? And they're pretty much unpronounceable. That's why they abbreviate <laughs> names a lot, you know, by uh, by usually just initials PJ or or MT or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, uh, so you you don't speak Thai, do you? Well, you speak Thai a little bit, eh? A little bit. Put Thai dai nit noi ka. So just a really small amount. Um, this is, you know, it's it's a bit of a regret that I didn't learn more. Um, but uh, it's Thai, as you mentioned, is a really difficult language, and when you're working in an English speaking environment, there's no sense of urgency let's say and my job was really stressful and really long hours and I had so many other passions veganism being one of them that I had to make choices about where I invested my time if I wanted to learn Thai to a high level then it would have required a significant investment of of my time and Sadly, it didn't make the cut at that time. But, you know, I do love learning languages. I'm learning Italian right now. And uh, oh, it's a lot of fun. But I was just too too busy at that point. And like I said, there was no real sense of urgency. Yeah. But I do have some regret. Nevertheless, wherever you go in the world, I find that all countries of the world know at least two English words, taxi and beer. That's just my <laughs> thoughts on that. Right. <laughs> the important words. The important uh, ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, you work in... Uh, Indonesia for a while. Whereabouts? 
I did. I did. That was an interesting, uh, interesting position. So I did work in Indonesia. Um, I worked in Tangerang, which is basically a suburb of Jakarta. Okay. Um, it was at a, at a quite a new school at the time, a pretty progressive school at the time. And it was professionally, it was great. And um, being in Jakarta, it led it lent itself to some amazing trips, you know, going to see the gorillas and, and Sulawesi and spending, you know, long weekends in Bali yep. and those kinds of things. I mean, Jakarta is a, is a challenging city. The traffic is very, very I get difficult. it. I understand that. And yep. um, so I, I did feel a little bit uh, hemmed in there because just yeah. doing anything much was required an epic uh, epic journey but um, you know I made amazing friends and the staff and the people that I met were just wonderful and I learned so much professionally okay I love Bali Bali is fantastic by the way I'm using Bangkok or Thailand as a stopover uh, before heading on to Indonesia and you may have heard this place I've, I've got it overnight in uh, in Jakarta, but I fly on onto the uh, the island over to Sarong. Do you mm-hmm. know where that is? No, I don't. There's so many thousands of islands in uh, exactly. Indonesia. <laughs> I know. Tell it's me about like it. Philippines, seven thousand islands. But the reason I'm going there because I, I do scuba diving, so I have to fly to Sarong <sighs> before getting a boat to an area called Raja Ampat. Mm-hmm. It's a yes. prestigious, protected marine park. All right, and a national park also, and the diving there is supposed to be spectacular. I was supposed to have been there last year, but Indonesia was on lockdown. So that's where I'm off to, really. I'm just going to be diving in the middle of nowhere, which I'm really Amazing. looking forward to. Yeah, it's – um, and while I'm on that subject of going to Sarong, I'm flying from Jakarta to, to Sarong. It's a four-hour flight on Batik Air. You ever flown those guys before? I have not. I flew Lion Air back in the day, Batik yeah. Air. I don't think so. I mean, I lived there in between 2011, 2013. So yeah. I'm sure things have changed. But um, yeah, I mean, just the name Batik Air, it just sounds so Indonesian. I love it. I, I know. I, I have no worries about it. I just get on the plane and go to sleep. The flight doesn't leave at 12.30 in the morning. Good God. All right, moving on. Glad you like that. Vietnam. Yes. Vietnam. What would you like to know about Vietnam? My my time there, or yeah, your time there. I mean, I've been to Ho Chi Minh City, Nha Trang, and Hanoi. Mm-hmm. And okay, and uh, Ho Chi Minh is obviously chaotic. Hanoi, well, chaotic. Hanoi is one of the most chaotic places because everyone's on bikes and scooters there, as you know. Um, but yeah, whereabouts were you, by the way? I was in Hanoi. I lived there for three and a half years. Get out of it! Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting, amazing time in my life. It's it's Hanoi's awesome. Vietnam is a really amazing place to visit. I loved it, and I can understand that. I, I, what I've also understood recently is that there's quite a few expats living in Vietnam right now, like Da Nang, Hoi An, Nha Trang, um, Hanoi. Probably, I don't think not so much, but it's it's like. I would say go back in time, but it is chaotic. And I remember, and you will probably relate to this, Bridie, crossing the road in downtown Hanoi. When you start crossing the road, do not stop. Keep walking because the people on scooters expect you. They'll walk, they'll, they'll avoid you. But if you stop, they're not expecting that, right? And they might hit you. 
<laughs> that is exactly right. If if that just freaks you out too much, find a find a Vietnamese person and <laughs> stick to them like glue. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's actually excellent because I went to the Hanoi Hilton there and I went to the the regular Hilton Hotel, <laughs> and uh, it's lovely. But you may have done this because of your time there. Did you take a trip to Halong Bay? Oh yes, maybe twenty times. Is yeah, it as wonderful as it seems? It is beautiful. It is beautiful. Um, most people go there on for a two-night or maybe a three-night stay, and yeah. most people um, will stay on a boat. Boat, yeah. They look like these sort of these traditional junks. They have a motor. They don't usually raise the sail. That, that's okay. And um, you can get all sorts of boats from really sort of basic kind of things to, to really, really fancy and beautiful boats. And uh, you get on at around lunchtime. All of the food is cooked on board. Uh, you have um, your own room with facilities depending on the price that you paid you'll have you know really beautiful facilities a bigger room what have you and um you spend a lot of time eating and you often get the opportunity to uh um go out do a bit of kayaking um uh maybe a little bit of a walk they have a lot of caves there as well so you there's what you can walk into these incredible caves because halong bay is a collection of limestone casts, right. which is this former former um, coral reef that actually is yeah. really long. Like it actually goes all through Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, and and through Malaysia. I mean, it's, it, it, originally it was very long when it was under the water, but this is the the remnants in Hanong Bay. So you, these limestone casts have created that you've got these incredible caves yeah. inside them. So you can go and visit those and, and walk through. And there's usually a little bit of entertainment or uh, fun on the boats. They're not big boats. They're not like no. huge cruise ships at all. Uh, and then at nighttime, all of the boats come together in this sort of like area surrounded by these limestone casts and uh for the night and yeah then you wake up in the morning fully refreshed and have a breakfast and do a couple more activities before before heading back to halong city okay sounds great actually it's a consideration of mine actually when i go there if i had days to spare i don't know yet i would love to go up there but it's getting there because from hanoi airport to halong bay how long is the drive? Mm, it's a couple of hours, but I should say that when you book a Halong Bay tour, most of the time it includes a it includes transportation from your hotel in Hanoi. Okay. So they'll they'll come and pick you up. You don't have to kind of get there yourself on public transportation, although you could do that if you if you wanted to. If there's could be a few scenarios in which you might want to do that but they all include like a, a shuttle um, and they'll pick up around various yeah. hotels in the area before getting on the road and, and taking you all the way to Halong City. And all in all, that's about three hours. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a two-day trip. Um, um, I think it's worth the drive, the drive at each end for sure. Yeah. I know when I was staying in uh, Nha Trang, I went there for, on a diving trip, believe it or not, but I did bump into a couple of Brits over there and, 
a couple of guys I spoke to, they had a choice of, well, they were going to move to Asia. They thought about Thailand and they thought about Cambodia, but they picked on Nha Trang, uh, Vietnam. and said it was the best decision they ever made. They, they live in the city, which is a nice city, by the way, a local pub to go to at night. They're pretty happy campers. Oh, well, good for you. But more and more uh, expats are there now, right? Vietnam, yes, indeed. And uh, I, I've heard of people who actually fly into um, Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh and they rent a car and drive up the coastline to get mm-hmm. either north, south, or, or south, north. And I think that that would be a cool thing. To do. I wouldn't do it at my age, but but it's a cool thing to do if you're a bit younger to drive or whatever. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I think even more iconic is the um, is doing it by motorbike. A lot of people do that trip by motorbike. Of course, you know, you have to know how to ride a motorbike and you no. should have some some skills in that area for sure. I, I would kill myself. I, I would not. I, I never had a motorbike in my life, but I'd do something wrong. And uh, no, I, I understand that. that It would be the best way, but uh, driving would be good, convertible. So, yeah, that, that would be a, a cool thing to do. About two weeks, yeah. Yeah, two, two weeks to go from one end to the other, is it? That's right. That's right. Actually, you might know about this, Malcolm. Um, my when we were living there, my husband, my partner, who also works in TV production as well as our travel company, he actually um, produced, like, put together the famous Top Gear, Top Gear Vietnam episode. I don't know. I'm sure you are aware of Top Gear, right? Yeah, I'm not a yeah. huge fan of it myself, and. and <laughs> <laughs> But I, I worked on it as well, and uh, so did uh, so did Seb. And we 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 took the presenters. We helped with the filming of that of that show. And as a result of that show, it was hugely popular because it was kind of funny. Not my cup of tea, but it was kind of funny. And um, and a lot of people really love to do that. That trip is considered, you know, an, an epic must do once bucket list kind of motorbike trip. Oh, absolutely! You used a phrase there that I still use today, even if I've been, even though I've been living in the states for over thirty years. Just not my cup of tea. <laughs> yes. I love that. <laughs> and people say, "You're so British." Oh dear, oh dear, never goes away. Okay, so that's uh, three places in Asia. France uh, was anywhere else you stayed for a substantial amount of time? Morocco. Morocco. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, where? Tangier or? Well, when I was in Morocco, I was tour leading. So I was there for nearly a year, I think. And I was living out of a suitcase the entire time. So I wouldn't say that I had a home base, actually. But uh, I did get to know Marrakesh, Essaouira very well, Fez, Chef Shawan, um, what am I forgetting? Mazuga, um, Essaouira. Did I say that? You know, the, the big country, the big the towns big cities, on yeah. sort of the tourist it. trail. And Essaouira is a lovely town on the coast. So yeah. when I was tour leading, um, I was taking people around and um, showing them this incredible country. So, yeah, I was there for a, for a year just to Okay, so there. you took people through like the Kasbah or, or places like that and Yes, yes. So as a tour leader, I kind of was like, let's think of it as facilitating the trip. So, you know, I would stay in the hotel with them. I'd take them out to dinner, um, get them from A to B, all of those kinds of things. Uh, But then, you know, when we arrived in a particular 
city. Obviously, I'm not Moroccan, so I can't speak to very well the history and the culture and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So we would always use local guides to sort of supplement yeah. it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Right. Interesting. Now, you own a travel company today that runs tour groups for vegans, right? That's Before right. Before we get into that, you're a vegan. Yes. Is, is, this may sound like a really stupid question, Bridie. Were you a vegetarian before you became a vegan? Vegan? I was actually. Oh, you were. Is yeah. That, is that normal progression? Is it? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I I became vegetarian when I was really young. Um, just uh, you know, compassion to animals and all of that kind of stuff. And it, I I was obviously doing my best to help animals, but I didn't really fully understand what had to happen for dairy and eggs to be produced. And once I kind of realized that, I mean, this is a long time ago, this information is much more readily available than it was back then. But uh, once I realized what has to happen to cows and chickens for all of us to have these eggs, I was like, hmm. I think I'm going to go vegan and uh, best decision I ever made for sure. Wonderful. Good friend of mine. Um, she is a vegan, has been for many, many years, but the, the one, the main catalyst for her to get to that situation was she's an animal rights activist. Mm-hmm. Are, are you uh, one of those? I admire that by the way. I, oh, thank yeah. you. Uh, but she, are you uh, a supportive of animals welfare and all that? Yes, yes, I am actually. So that was my motivation be- to become yeah. uh, vegan was um, because, you know, I didn't want to participate in uh, the suffering of animals for something that I don't really need. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not just the food, it's the thick clothes that I wear and it's the products that I choose and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, through various times in my time of being vegan, I've done lots of, you know, activism and all sorts of different bits and pieces around the world. Um, but, you know, I obviously having a small business now, that's all consuming. So um, I don't get to do as much activism as perhaps I would to. like to, but, you know, maybe in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's becoming more uh, it's commonplace, but it, it's actually a, a, a good thing, right? The cruelty to animals is obviously a b- mm. big thing. I know you mentioned that about chickens and cows. It's it's pretty brutal. Like probably the same thing with sheep back in the old country. I don't know. I, I I just don't know. But you won't eat fish either, will you? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm a scuba. I'm a scuba diver. So I'm one as as a scuba diver. We're told do not touch or intimidate the fish or we well, can't intimidate coral, but don't touch the coral, but don't touch or intimidate the fish. The tour company is what you run today for vegans. So you organize vacations for vegan. Now, if a person wasn't a vegan and they wanted to come on vacation with you, they've got to want to turn into a vegan to be able to come with you. Is that right? That makes sense. Uh, I understand you. And Yes, you're partially right. So um, we do have non-vegans join our trips. Usually it's because they're a partner or a friend of a vegan who wants to come. So I'm imagining that listeners are like thinking, oh, my goodness, their vegan partner has dragged them along on this tour, kicking and screaming. But actually, that's not always the case. I remember this really lovely story of a couple who, who came on our trip and 
the the wife was vegan and the husband was not. And he had actually suggested the trip to her and I said, look, you know, whenever we go away on a, on a tour, for example, you know, you're always sort of, you're an afterthought. Catering to your needs is a bit of an afterthought. Um, and the same thought and dedication is not given to you that it is to non-vegans. How about we go on a vegan tour. And um, so that was, I thought, really sweet. And uh, yeah, we we do, obviously, most of our travelers are vegan, but um, non-vegans are very welcome. We just ask that they eat vegan in front of the group. Obviously, what they do on their own time is, is up to them. And, you know, try not to sort of engage in, in and have big discussions about, about it because, you know, um, yeah, of course. you know, debates, I should say debates. Uh, and, but, you know, I find generally speaking, everyone is so respectful and so kind to each other. We've, we've never had a problem in that area. No, I mean, for me, I'm just taking for granted now it happens. Tell me, like, if you organize tours, you go somewhere, name a good vegan destination. Oh my goodness! There are so there tons of them. Okay. many, so many. Oh, well, okay, give me a couple. I, I don't know. I just because uh, it hasn't come to my head before that like, you want just a place a vegan tour. Well, I thought, well, where would you go? So, give me an idea. Oh, sure. Well, we take travelers to places that are accidentally vegan friendly. Uh, these are countries like Italy and Thailand. And then we take people to places that aren't vegan friendly and make them vegan friendly. France, for example, French cuisine, not very vegan friendly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, practically everything has butter or milk or cheese or something like that. So uh, I'll answer your question. Um, there's a few places I could mention, but I will mention Italy. Italy mm-hmm. is really, really wonderful mm-hmm. because um, Italians are huge vegetable eaters. They yes. eat so many vegetables. And as a result, it's often seen as the focus of the dish. Um, so, and the produce quality is extremely high. So, they love to eat vegetables, so it features heavily yeah. in their cuisine. And, yeah. you know, south, south of Italy is a bit easier than the north of Italy, definitely. Yeah. So um, you've got that piece of the puzzle. And then you have uh, the fact that in menus, it's very clearly written exactly what's in the dish, you know. It, it will say, like, sp- spaghetti marinara, let, wh- whatever it is, and then they will list kind of what's in it. So it's very easy to tell just by looking at the menu whether something is vegan or not. Also, on top of that, there are some incredible vegan restaurants in Italy. Like, it's just incredible. And for those people that don't know, Happy Cow is a really great app to use to find vegan Restaurants. Um, Wait a or- oh, happy cow. I get it. Happy cow. The cow's happy because he's not going to be chopped up for a steak. Right, oh, I get it. Right. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. So that has vegan, veg friendly, and vegetarian restaurants. It's a huge database of the whole world's um, uh, um, whole world's restaurants. And, you know, you can find so many places around you. But even just ordering off the menu is very easy. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's fine. You can just talk to the wait staff and say, I see you've got this on the me- this ingredient, this ingredient in the kitchen. Can you rustle something up? And, you know, usually it's yeah. fine. So great, 
non, great uh, non-vegan restaurants that can accommodate. You've got lots more vegan restaurants. You even have vegan hotels in Italy. Really, really beautiful, stunning hotels. That's I've never heard of that before. That's yeah, amazing. yeah. There's actually a really great website called veggiehotels.com and it like happy cow, it lists all of these hotels and you'll be surprised at, at what's there. So at the end of this month, I'm heading to Italy uh, to run two trips and one will be in Tuscany. We're staying in this stunning vegan yeah. um, uh, Tuscan farmhouse yeah. on that trip. And then we we'll also be staying in Naturno, which is in the north near Bolzano in the Italian Alps. There's yeah. a vegan hotel there. And then we'll also be going to uh, um, uh, Alpi di Suezi, which is that incredibly beautiful high pasture plateau. It's on the UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's very, it's these incredible pasture land and meadows with these these, um, jaggedy soaring mountains coming out. Mm -hmm. It's it's really beautiful. Anyway, there's a vegetarian, mostly vegan refuge up there as well so so um there's some really wonderful options but actually there are vegan hotels in many many countries or bed and breakfasts at least okay, let's, let's probably say Google that. And find out that yeah i just wondered uh, now if you go to a vegan restaurants which obviously they do exist now i can't imagine looking at a menu and said there's all these different dishes are vegan but they obviously are right mm-hmm. now it's okay having hot and spicy sauce to these is it Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if you're well, vegan and you can add whatever you want, you can. And the great thing about Italian chefs is they're usually very, very proud of their food and they're, they're not going to serve up something they think is not great. And, yeah, you can flavor your food however you like because when you think about it, the flavor of food comes from herbs and spices. Yeah, and they got plants. that right. Well, I'm a spice freak. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Indian food. Being Brits are right because British mm-hmm. food tends to be bland, so they migrated to Indian food. Still eat it a lot today. Normally, we make our own here, but yeah, I get it. I I understand um, uh, what you're doing there. I think it's a, a good thing. And for health wise, I don't. I thought is um can there be a pro lots of protein in vegan food as well? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's it's very easy to get protein on on a vegan diet. Uh, you know, when you go vegan, there's a bit of a learning curve, definitely. Like you you have to learn a little bit more. But just non vegans also have health issues with nutrition as well. Um, when yeah. you think about heart disease and hypertension, yeah, all of I've these biggest that, yeah. killers, these biggest killers, they're all. They're very often related to diet. Um, so, yeah. you know, eating a lot of vegetables is a really good thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's pretty easy. Yeah, I eat a lot of veggies. Um, nice. Like roast them in the oven. But, uh, yeah, absolutely, it's a good thing. So, uh, excellent. Now, if somebody out there who's listening to this, um, obviously you're experiencing countries around the world and the fact that you're vegan and you organize vegan tours, I'd imagine there's got to be people interested in this. So how can people contact you if they want to tap your brains for some ideas or places to go to, or maybe you can fix them up with something? Sure thing. Sure thing. So we specialize in vegan group tours. That's our business. So we're not like a regular travel agent in that sense. Uh, I mean, we're happy to refer you on to a vegan travel agent. We have lots of friends in the industry that can kind of help with that, but we specialize in vegan group tours. Um, But 
definitely they can um, reach out to us on our website, wellveegantravel.com. We're pretty proud of our website. We think it's pretty comprehensive in the information, but you can always book a call with me to talk to me more about, um, you know, whether you would be a good fit for one of our tours, for example, okay. whether sure. whether all of those things. And we actually have a travel podcast as well called the Vegan oh, Travel really? Podcast. Okay. We do, we do. And we talk a lot about um, travel through the lens of a vegan. So it's not just things like how to travel as a vegan. It might be, for example, um, I just released an episode the other day, which was all about uh, um, traveling to Oregon, reasons why people might like to travel to Oregon. And of course, the person I'm interviewing is vegan. So there's not going to be any sort of glorification of a ranch for example or this uh, this amazing steak restaurant obviously we we don't talk oh. about that so much but we talk about um vegan abundance and okay. there is so much vegan abundance when traveling excellent so you're on facebook world vegan travel on facebook and instagram also yes and the podcast world vegan travel that's worth a listen to and i'm looking at your logo right mm-hmm. What is that a picture of on your logo? It's a gibbon. I thought, well, I thought it was an ape of some description, but it's a gibbon. How about that? Are, it's are a gibbon. gibbon. Are gibbons vegans? They are, actually. So if you kind of look at the way his arms are, it's like a V. Yeah. Vegans like to put the, the V everywhere. Um, uh, but uh, on we decided to choose that logo. Maybe we'll update it in the future. It was just after we had done a trip to Thailand and one of the, our first ever trip, and we wanted to uh, incorporate an animal into our logo and a gibbon seemed like a good idea because one of the first sanctuaries that we visited with our tours was a visit to a gibbon sanctuary because this is a big issue in Thailand, um, the capturing of baby gibbons to be used as photo props, for example. It's um, extremely sad and that is why we have a gibbon in our logo. We went to um, a tiger rehabilitation centre, an elephant rehabilitation centre in northern Thailand because the elephants used to be used for logging there, which is now mm. doesn't happen, but they're taking care of the elephants in a nice way. So uh, it, it's, it's good. So excellent. All right, uh, Bridie, anything else you want to add before we close out today? I don't think so, other than to say thank you so much for having me on. It was really lovely chatting with you, Malcolm. Well, thank you. Enjoy your time up in Squamish. Thanks so much. That name has got to come from somewhere, uh, but I won't it, bring that. It does. It's um, First Nations language of the people that used to live here for Mother of Winds, and uh, and it is actually a very windy place. <laughs> well, okay, good. I can sleep well tonight then. <laughs> All right, Bridie, take care of yourself. Best wishes Thank for you. the future and your business, and uh, I'll have to take uh, a little listen to one of your podcast episodes in the future. I'll do that. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, please check out my website, malcolmjteasdale.com for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe.